Welcome back to Hall Pass, the podcast. My name is Jamal Andrus. I am your gracious host. And with me, uh, we have guest number three on the podcast. Episode two, guest number three, Yvette Dion. Yvette Dion is an American culture writer. She's the author of Fat Girls Deserve Fairy Tales 2 and Lifting As We Climb. Dion brings a strong expertise on popular culture, politics, and feminism. And Dion's work has been featured just about everywhere. Mike, CNET, the New York Times, Teen Vogue, The Root, The New Yorker, um, the list goes on and on. So um, she has been the editor-in-chief of Bitch Media since 2018. And tell me how difficult it is to run a newsroom. Oh, it's really difficult right now, especially we're a week away from an election. Everybody's anxiety is really high going into such a consequential election. I should also say she is doing all of this remotely as we yeah. all are, which is not helpful, I can imagine. At all, at all, but, you know, doing the best that we can with what we got. Let me start with this. You know, this is a very important election. The bedrock of the Democratic Party is Black women, um, even though they were the last folks to get the vote. So, you know, your book, Lifting As We Climb, discusses the plight of Black women uh, gaining the right to vote. And, and I guess let's just start with what prompted you to write this book? Yeah, I always say that I got rather lucky that I was approached about writing this book based on an article I'd written for Teen Vogue in 2017, also about Black women suffragists. And Viking, who was the publisher for the book, approached me because they thought that that article could be turned into a longer length project ahead of the centennial of the 19th Amendment, and that there was this entire history that was just overlooked. When we talk about suffrage, we only talk about two or three Black women, mainly Sojourner Truth, but there was this whole history that was really buried that we could excavate ahead of the 19th Amendment centennial. The 19th Amendment allowing women to vote was passed in 1919. Yvette, one of the things that I think is um, especially tragic about Black women's role in the suffrage movement is how they were ostracized while also working towards someone else's sort of liberation in this area. Can you kind of give me a timeline on that and talk a little bit about how that came to be? Well, Black men had actually had the right to vote since the passage of the 15th Amendment after the Civil War. So as the United States was for a very short period of time trying to atone for slavery, they passed a set of reconstruction laws, one of which granted Black men the right to vote. But as we know, soon after in four years or so was Jim Crow was ushered in. And so Jim Crow and the violence that accompanied Jim Crow laws really prevented Black men from exercising their constitutional right at that point. So then there was just a period of about 45 years between then and the Voting Rights Act in which Black men and Black women were fighting for the right to vote. But white women had a, a different fight entirely. Uh, for the most part, they just wanted to be equal to their husbands or the men in their families. And so they aligned themselves with white suffragists in the South, particularly to grant white women the right to vote, even if, at the, even if that came at the expense of Black people. And Black women during that time, both free and enslaved, they were speakers, they were writers, they were poets. They were a part of abolition societies, and they soon came to realize that if they wanted to eventually abolish slavery and go through Reconstruction, that they needed to be a part of the process. Up until that point, white women and Black women got along pretty great in the suffrage movement. They, it was one of the only organizations where Black women and white women were together. 
And so from that point, all the way up until the Voting Rights Act, you just had Black women creating their own voting rights organizations and women's rights organizations that were focused not only on getting Black women the right to vote, but ending lynching across the United States, building kindergartens in Black schools to educate Black children, opening hospitals, um, training Black nurses, having housing programs to ensure that everyone had somewhere to live. That was the work that Black women were doing, and white women saw it and simply excluded them altogether. So from the larger um, women's suffrage organization, Black women were completely excluded. They weren't allowed to come to any of the conferences or conventions. And so we just saw leading up to the 19th, the passage of the 19th Amendment, we just saw white women purposefully excluding Black women at every turn from having whole marches in Georgia and conventions. And that persisted all the way through even to the March on Washington in 1913 when Ida B. Wells Barnett wanted to walk with the Illinois delegation and they told her she had to go to the back of the parade with other Black suffragists, even though she was so integral to giving the movement momentum. And so that is something that persisted all through that time. And so white women did fight um, their own individual separate fight to get, to, to get the 19th Amendment passed. Um, it took them seven years past a March on Washington in 1913 to do it, but black people were still facing so much violence that it really didn't make a difference. I would say the past you know, five, six years has been this sort of re-examining of history and especially some of the figures that we hear about in school, some of the, you know, the Susan B. Anthony, for example. Um, and you talk a little bit about her in your book. Um, tell me why you feel like these white women who were fighting for the right to vote stayed silent when it came to uh, Black women. It benefited them to be honest. They were trying to pass a suffrage amendment. They knew that they could not achieve that without the support of senators in the South, all of whom were white men. And so they strategically aligned themselves with white women in the South who endorsed lynching, who endorsed voting as a form or an extension of white supremacy, who were very vocal and very open about Black men getting the right to vote before them being a sin in their eyes or something that should be punishable by death. And so they thought that that was the best approach to achieving their goal, even if it came at the expense of Black women who were really aligned with them. Of course, Black women wanted to expand what they were thinking about. So they wanted to pass a lynching amendment, for instance. They wanted to have schools in Black communities that were well-resourced and well-funded. So they had different priorities, but around suffrage, they were really aligned. And I think white women, to be quite frank, threw them under the bus in order to achieve what it is that they wanted for themselves. I think we, we do a disservice to our historical figures when we put them on a pedestal. We don't treat them as if they are human beings who are flawed, who make mistakes, who make decisions that come at the expense of other people that is where the biggest mistake comes in. And so when we are addressing history, I think we should be as honest as possible, even when it comes down to people like an MLK, who in some respects, when we talk about the civil rights movement, I say all the time that Rosa Parks was organizing when he was in high school. And yet we remember her as like this feeble elderly woman who sat down on a bus. That doesn't happen accidentally. And so if we ever want to really grapple with our history and make strides toward liberating oppressed people in the United States, it starts with simply telling the truth 
even if that means that our heroes or who we consider to be heroic are complicit in the oppression of other people. Uh, let's talk about some of those, uh, you know, bigger than life figures, uh, women like Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, um, Shirley Chisholm. What do you think their legacy has been thus far? Even the parts that are missing uh, for the folks who know those names. Yeah, we're talking about women, especially I'll start with Sojourner Truth, who was alive before the Civil War, who had escaped slavery. The amount of bravery that it takes to sit down for photos when you know that you have escaped slavery and at any point you could be kidnapped and tossed back onto a plantation, to sit down for photos, to sit down with the biographer to tell your story. It requires a level of courage that I can't even muster in my pinky. And to do that as someone with a disability, which is so often overlooked in her history, I think that we see these women as superhuman. But in actuality, they were ordinary folks who just decided that they'd had enough and that they were willing to put themselves on the line, to put their families on the line. In the case of Fannie Lou Hamer, who was run off her land for attempting to register to vote in Mississippi in the 1950s, they were ordinary people who just stood up and said that we don't wanna take this anymore and we wanna push for change no matter what it costs. That I would say is the most indelible part of their legacies and the things that we should hold on to because you don't have to be you know, in, in hindsight, we think of them as, as heroes, but in their time and in their moment, they were just brave enough to, to step forward. That's what we should hold on to. We're, we're at the 100th year anniversary um, of the 19th Amendment. And I guess we are seeing at this moment uh, uh, representation in a way that we have never seen, specifically Kamala Harris, um, running for vice president. But where do you stand on this idea of sort of, you gotta support your own regardless of their past? Uh, I'm rooting for everybody black who shares my politics. That's, that's my approach. I mean, in, in the case of Kamala Harris specifically, I think that she is a complicated figure because she's so aware of the history I love that um, during her Democratic National Convention speech, she started that speech by talking about all the Black women in electoral politics who had come before her to be elevated to where she is and potentially become the first Black woman vice president of the United States. I am here tonight is a testament to the dedication of generations before me, women and men who believed so fiercely in the promise of equality, liberty, and justice for all. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, and we celebrate the women who fought for that right. Yet so many of the black women who helped secure that victory were still prohibited from voting long after its ratification. But they were undeterred. Without fanfare or recognition, they organized and testified and rallied and marched and fought not just for their vote, but for a seat at the table. These women and the generations that followed worked to make democracy and opportunity real in the lives of all of us who followed. They paved the way for the trailblazing leadership of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. 
And these women inspired us to pick up the torch and fight on. Women like Mary Church Terrell, Mary Cloyd Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Diane Nash, Constance Baker Motley, and the great Shirley Chisholm. We're not often taught their stories, but as Americans, we all stand on their shoulders. That doesn't happen without the work of those Black women. And so I think on a representational level, it matters for, say, a 12-year-old Black girl to see that it's possible for her to become the Vice President of the United States. Something that I think is ironic and tragic about Black women when it comes to politics is that the Democratic Party relies so heavily on Black women. I guess my question is, what is the future, uh, ideally, for Black women when it comes to politics? You know, we saw a record number of Black women run for office and get elected in 2018. I imagine that's a bit of it. But what is sort of the future of Black women in politics, um, considering this, this tragic history that we have behind us? Yeah, I would say that, that Black women, our lineage is full of just firecrackers who wanted to change the system and who figured out how to do it, no matter whether, whether or not you agree with their methods is, is beyond the point. But Black women who were committed to social change by any means necessary, that is what I hope to see more of. I think in order to achieve many of our political goals and aims, we need people to remain activated. Black women have to remain in the driver's seat in some respects in order to keep communities activated around these issues in order to push, especially if we get Joe Biden and Kamala Harris more to the left. You need people on the streets in lobbying in congressional halls doing that work. Outside of that, I think that we are going to see more Black women running for office at every level of government. I think because um, parties are now, especially the Democratic Party, is now really focused on small donor cultivation, it makes it easier for Black women to run for office, whereas before, it was really a wealthy person's game. Like, politics is something you go into, you don't have anything else to do. Like you've done all you want to do in your career, you have nothing else to do, you go into politics. I think now kind of in the mold of an AOC or Ayanna Presley or Ilhan Omar, we're going to see more women in their molds who are very progressive, very outspoken, who are able to get to office because of organizations like Run For Something, who teach them how to cultivate a donor base without needing to be tapped into the wealthiest people in the United States to make it happen. We're going to see more Black women running for office. Even um, Trayvon Martin's mother ran. She didn't win her election. But when you realize that there's a place that you can make change and hopefully prevent the next tragedy um, caused by systemic racism, we're going to see more Black women stepping into that tradition. The Gen Z folks, and they are coming up and they are vocal and they are loud and they have political priorities and they're going to make their will heard. Like AOC is their patron saint. Yeah, the TikTok generation is not playing around. At all. <laughs> They're really not here for really your respectability. <laughs> they really are not here for any of that. Have you voted? I voted. I voted. Drop my ballot off around the corner at the library. We good to go. <laughs> awesome. Did you did you put something on the ground after you voted? 
No, because they were not handing out my I voted stickers, you know. That's weak. Denver, <laughs> get it together. Really? Get it together. And we've been a mail-in balloting state for years. I need them yeah. to get it together. Well, Yvette, it has been a fantastic conversation. Good luck on November 3rd uh, for whoever you may be rooting for. I'll talk to you next time, Yvette. Thank you. As I mentioned in episode one, each episode we talk about a vocabulary word. We're, again, this is school themed. And of course, this week it's going to be suffrage, which means the right to vote in political elections. Okay, everyone, here's my stump speech about why it's so important to vote. So many have fought and died for the right, heavy on the right to vote. Voting is a right and not a privilege. You are eligible to vote when you turn 18. If you're listening to this and you're over the age of 18, please make sure you are registered in your state. And if you are not registered, go to IWillVote.com and be sure to cast your ballot on or before November 3rd. If you can, do it early. If you're under the age of 18, your time is coming, but don't be afraid to get involved and be informed on parties and what party ideology you more likely align with. Not your parents, not your cousin, not your brother, you. If you're voting on election day after work, before work, try to stay motivated, stay in line, bring something to binge watch. And lastly, make absolutely certain you're voting the whole ballot, not just the top of the ticket. Those district attorneys, judges, aldermen, they have a much bigger impact on your day-to-day -day than any president ever will. Thank you for tuning in. As always, you can catch us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you heard today, check out our Instagram and Twitter, at BAPS Productions. Have another lesson plan to add to the Hall Pass curriculum? Slide in our DMs, of course. This is Jamal Andrus, and this is Hall Pass the Podcast.